RT8K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Sean Kennedy. Tonight's headlines. The government says it plans to require all civil servants to pledge allegiance to the SAR in one go. A High Court jury votes to convict University of Hong Kong Professor Chung Ki Chung of murder and the Education Bureau outlines a planned revamp of the Liberal Studies Secondary School subject. The government has changed its mind about having civil servants pledge allegiance to the SAR in phases, saying it's instead decided that all government staff will have to do so in one go. As Maggie Ho reports, officials haven't decided what to do with people who refuse to make such a declaration, but warned that this would be a serious matter. Secretary for Civil Service Patrick Nibb said rather than roll out the oaths in faces, all civil servants who haven't already made their vows of loyalty will be told to do so in one go. We come to the view that basically the act of confirming in writing the upholding of the basic law and uh, pledge allegiance to the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region basically is a uh, basic requirement of civil servants. And so basically all civil servants um, serving and uh, new new need uh, recruit to do so. So um, basically there is no particular reason that we have to do it by faces if logistically we can uh, handle it. So uh, we uh, plan to uh, do it in one go. Basically the majority of the civil servants will do it by signing a declaration. Mr Nip also noted that the national security law stipulates that anyone running in elections or taking up public office should take an oath or sign a declaration to uphold the basic law and swear allegiance to the SAR. He said his bureau is consulting the Department of Justice on what action can be taken against any civil servants who refuse to make the pledge, adding that omitting this step is a rather serious matter. Mr Nip also said the government will in the near future consult major civil servant groups and address their concerns on the matter and will make an announcement as soon as possible. University of Hong Kong Professor Chang Ki Chung has been found guilty of murdering his wife two years ago. He'll be sentenced next Thursday. Wendy Wong has more. A High Court jury voted 5-2 to two to convict Chun of the murder of Chan Man Wai in August 2018 after eight hours of deliberation. The 56-year-old was arrested when his wife's body was found inside a suitcase hidden in a sealed wooden box in his office. She was strangled in the bedroom of their home before her body was taken to the office. Chen had pleaded not guilty to murder but a meat and manslaughter. The court heard the testimony of witnesses including Chen's son and daughter, Chen's sister, as well as expert evidence over Chen's mental state. The mechanical engineering academic has earlier pleaded guilty to preventing a lawful burial by concealing his wife's body in a box. While a murder conviction carries a mandatory life sentence, the defence still plans to proceed with mitigation, so sentencing has been pushed back for a week. The Education Bureau says it's going to introduce sweeping changes to the Liberal Studies secondary school subject, which has been blamed by many pro-Beijing figures for last year's social unrest. The subject will get a new curriculum, grading system and even a different name, with the changes likely to come into force from the start of the next academic year. Here's Wendy Wong again. Education Secretary Kevin Young said all the teaching materials will be vetted by the government and the existing curriculum will be slashed in half to reduce pressure on students. There will be more emphasis on the country's development, the constitution, the basic law and the rule of law. The assessment mechanism for the subject will also be revamped from the original 7th grade scoring system to a simple pass or fail. 
Mr. Young said pupils will be required to take a trip to the mainland as part of the course, adding that there's nothing new in strengthening students' knowledge of the country. There is no major change in the new or what we call the revamped subject. It's, it's also will have discussions of national education in there. That's, that's always uh, one of our objectives in all the subjects. He also said the subject needs a new name because of the negative stigma associated with liberal studies. When we discuss the subject with different sectors in the society, there are certain sectors in the society that feel that this subject is very bad. So in order to give the subject a new start. We think that it would be a, a better idea to have a new name. The education chief said the Curriculum Development Council can decide what the subject should be known as in future, adding that the government has no problem with the word liberal. The subject, which is meant to encourage critical thinking, has come under constant criticism from members of the probation camp who claim it has fueled anti-government sentiment among students. You're tuned to RTHK. The time is five minutes past 11. The chairwoman of LegCo's education panel, Priscilla Leung, from the Business and Professionals Alliance, says the change will benefit teachers and students. First of all, we don't think the liberal studies should uh, deserve to get 250 teaching hours at high school level, whereas the syllabus and the scope of teaching materials are not too organized. That are uh, offering a lot of burden to the teaching load as well as the studying load, both to teachers and to the students. But education sector lawmaker Ibkin Yun said the decision to overhaul the subject was political. I think they are trying to cut down the you know, emphasis on the study of you know, current issues and also the ideas of critical thinking and uh, independent thinking would not be emphasized so much. At the same time, I think it will increase the amount of time spent on China. I think well, studying about China is, of course, uh, something very important, but no, it has to be uh, of a very proportionate one. To the latest in COVID-19, the number of cases in the dance cluster has now topped 300. Health officials today reported 59 more infections linked to the cluster, raising the total number to 311. They've also identified seven more premises that were visited by patients in the cluster, including two Philip Wayne gyms in Chimsao Choi and Causeway Bay. People who visited these venues are being urged to get tested soon. Health Secretary Sophia Chan says from Saturday onwards, teachers will be given, I'm sorry, doctors will be given the power to order patients with COVID-19 symptoms to undergo mandatory tests. Priscilla Ng reports. Sophia Chan says private doctors are generally receptive of the plan to get them to demand COVID tests from patients who turn up showing symptoms. She says they've agreed to work closely with the government on the matter. There isn't a strict list of what symptoms will warrant a mandatory test, and officials say doctors will have to act according to their professional judgment. Professor Chan says she hopes people will abide by their doctor's instructions because getting tested early is crucial to stopping silent transmissions within the community. Refusing to take a test could land people with a $25,000 fine and up to six months in prison. She says over the next few days, five more testing centers will begin operation to cater for the expected surge in demand. They'll be in community halls in Liking, Tunmun, Fanling, Hanghao and Yaotong. From Saturday, specimen bottles will also be available at post offices across the territory.
A man who threw eggs at police officers and the force's headquarters in Wan Chai during an anti-government protest last year has been jailed for 21 months. Maggie Ho reports. Eastern Court had earlier found Pun Ho Chiu, who's 31, guilty of nine charges, including taking part in an illegal assembly, criminal damage and assaulting a police officer. Magistrate Winnie Lau said that even though nobody was injured and an egg is not a weapon of mass destruction, the court has a responsibility to protect police officers carrying out their duties. She said Mr. Pun, who's also known as the painter, played a leading role during the protest on June the 21st last year. And his actions were both a nuisance and a threat to the public. The yolk and shells from the eggs he threw not only made the exterior of the police headquarters dirty, but may also have caused damage to an escalator that was hit, she said. The magistrate added that the throwing of eggs at the police station would have provoked discontent with the force, undermining officers' law enforcement action and endangering society. She said the fact that Mr. Poon repeatedly hurled verbal insults at officers increased the gravity of his offence, as what he did could have encouraged other protesters to follow suit. Mr. Poon is best known for his drawing on the streets during the Occupy movement in 2014, and he often appeared half-naked at various protests. Development Secretary Michael Wong says he's confident the government will be able to deliver on its promise to provide more than 316,000 public housing flats in the coming 10 years. His comment comes after Chief Executive Carrie Lam said in her policy address that the government has found all the 330 hectares required to meet demand for public housing in the next decade. Mr Wong brushed aside concerns the government may face obstacles resuming the land for the project or other delays. These parcels of land will come on stream uh, within the target 10-year period. It's because if you look at the NDAs, uh, if you look at Kutong North, Fanning North, if you look, look at Hong Shui Kyo, actually they've all passed the statutory planning stage. I mean, the OSFPs have been approved already. So, so coming up will be uh, land administration procedures, of which we have a lot of experience, and construction itself. Again, we we are very confident over the control of the construction time. Um, We are not foreseeing any substantial difficulty. The latest government figures show that private home prices slipped to their lowest level in five months. Data from the Rating and Valuation Department reveal that the fall was particularly evident for luxury flats, categorised as homes bigger than 1,700 square feet. Their prices recorded a drop of almost 4% from September. Rents for last month also dropped to their lowest since June. The Chief Executive, Carrie Lerm, says she's ready to resume her monthly question sessions in LegCo because she wants to strengthen her relationship with lawmakers. The move comes just two weeks after the mass resignation of the entire pan-democratic camp. Candace Wong has details. Carrie Lam has kept a wide berth of the legislature this year in light of the protests she was constantly being greeted with. But no pan-democratic legislators are left in the council now, and Mrs Lam says it's time for her to make her comeback. She spoke through an interpreter. I want to consolidate uh, the executive legislature relationship. So with the agreement of the president, I propose that uh, I will resume the monthly question time, which lasts half an hour in the remainder of this term of the Legislative Council. And also, um, if uh, there is a need for further response or follow-up on members' questions and my response, I 
undertake to give a response within 30 days. But even taking questions from government-friendly lawmakers on her policy address wasn't all plain sailing. Roundtable legislator Michael Tian asked Mr. Slam whether in future she could give him credit when she takes up his ideas, to which he received this response from the CE. It seems that like you've already got me into trouble. You said that this policy address is meant to help me run for a second term and you are already getting me into trouble because I don't have such intentions. It wasn't clear whether Mrs. Lam was saying she had no intention of seeking another five years in office or whether she was just denying that the policy address was aimed at helping her secure another term. The chief executive has dismissed a suggestion to let people in economic trouble tap their pension. At the question and answer session, pro-Beijing lawmaker Paul Tsai said many people faced financial difficulty because of the pandemic and asked if the government would allow them access to their mandatory provident funds. But speaking through an interpreter, Mrs Lamb said the MPF was an important pillar in retirement protection and that must not change. If we take down this pillar at this point, there would be far-reaching implications and we'll see where we could offer other timely assistance. Uh, for example, yesterday, uh, we mentioned that uh, if people have uh, commercial units or non-domestic units, uh, we are now abolishing the doubled at valorum duty. Overseas now, a South Korean man who blackmailed young women and girls into sharing sexual videos has been sentenced to 40 years in prison. Cho Ju-bin ran a network that threatened and exploited more than 70 people. The videos were sold in secretive chat rooms on the Telegram app. They're thought to have been viewed by up to 10,000 people. The BBC's Laura Bicker reports from Seoul. Women's advocates have been watching this case carefully, as courts in this country are often accused of being too lenient to those found guilty of digital sex crimes. Over 80,000 letters of petition were dropped off at the court, urging judges to punish the gang. One letter from a victim described Cho as evil. The 40-year punishment still falls short of the life sentence sought by prosecutors. Five other defendants have received sentences ranging from 7 to 15 years. And finally, the body of the Argentine, oh, sorry, Argentine football legend Diego Maradona has been taken to the presidential palace in Buenos Aires where fans can play their final respects. Um, spokesman said Maradona would be buried on the outskirts of the city. Maradona died of a heart attack at the age of 60 and will be laid to rest at the cemetery where his parents were also buried. And a reminder of our top stories tonight. The government says it plans to require all civil servants to pledge allegiance to the SAR in one go. A High Court jury votes to convict University of Hong Kong professor Chung Ki Chung of murder. And the Education Bureau outlines a planned revamp of the liberal studies subject. The news from RTHK. RTHK. It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's News Wrap programme. The chairwoman of the New People's Party, Regina Yip, says yesterday's policy speech contained little to address Hong Kong's immediate problems relating to the pandemic and disaffected youth. The chief executive, Carrie Lam, herself admitted Hong Kong's problems weren't resolved, with the current lull in social unrest possibly a byproduct of the coronavirus and social distancing measures. Mrs Zip told Mike Weeks she thought the government hadn't had the time to work out how to win back the hearts and minds of young people. There are lots of long-term measures for kick-starting our economy, leveraging the resources and the market of the Greater Bay Area. Certainly very important, strengthening our aviation hub, financial centre, innovation technology, 
but there are no immediate reliefs for some of our more pressing problems, like um, fighting COVID-19. We're still in a suppress and lift mode for 10 months. The light at the end of the tunnel is not in sight, although the mainland has got that under control. And uh, there's no immediate relief for those devastated by COVID, you know, other than the anti-epidemic funds already approved. There's still many sectors and many occupations deeply affected. And for young people, there is very little, very light on young people. Just going back to the voluntary recommendation, self-recommendation scheme for joining government boards and committees and subsidies for work in the Greater Bay Area. So for large numbers of young people who have suffered the cleavage in last year's conflict and whose job learning opportunities and job opportunities have been severely damaged by last year's riots and this year's epidemic. Not much is said to help them climb out of their nadir. It sounds like you would have liked Mrs Lam to provide perhaps a clearer vision for Hong Kong's future than she did do then. I think she hasn't come around. It's been a very busy year. It's been a very stressful year, not just for Mrs Lam, but for all the officials, principal officials and civil servants. I think they've been working very long hours fighting COVID. I think they just have not had time to come around to working out other political solutions or hearts and minds solutions or how to win back our young people. I think they need more time to work on that. Okay, but she did have time to uh, delay her policy address and go to uh, Beijing and then Shanghai and Shenzhen. Yet it seems there's not that many initiatives that came out of that. Well, I think the government is hoping by offering job opportunities and start-up opportunities in the Greater Bay Area, they could go some way toward helping uh, a lot of the young graduates or young talents looking for work or opportunities for success. Okay. Uh, one of your colleagues, uh, Michael Teen, uh, Legco oh. colleagues, described this policy address as a blueprint for Carrie Lam to fight for another term as chief executive. What's your thoughts on that? Well, it's open for her to fight for another term. You know, that's entirely possible. And she's certainly worked very hard to put a lot of detail into this policy address, which is the longest by far since she took over. It was indeed. What was it like sitting through it in the chamber then? Well, I already went through it in Exco, so it's not news to me. And it was a very long. Some of us were pretty tired, so I think some dozed off. Um, I got a highly critical email about that, but I hope people would understand. Some of the officials are really very tired. They've been working very long hours. And uh, sitting through such a long address is not easy. And a lot of world political leaders, they don't deliver such a long address. You know, Trump governed by Twitter. An mm. American president, the State of Union address is normally short. You know, there's a difference between a long, detailed administrative address and a, a, a speech by a political leader providing the necessary messages for the people. There's so, a difference between a policy address mm. and messages. So, so you, do you think 
that's what Carrie Lam should have done, provided messages rather than this lengthy address that she could have just published this. Um, she hasn't got the training to do it. As a veteran, civil servant, she still believes in the strength of a law, very lengthy, detail-packed address. Her press statements are always like that. A former U.S. Assistant Secretary of Commerce in the Obama-Biden administration says the U.S. President-elect will help heal relations with China. Nicole Lam-Hale, now Managing Director at Kroll, a division of Duff and Phelps, was speaking to RTHK after Xi Jinping congratulated Joe Biden on winning the presidential election. Mike Weeks asked her if she was surprised that it had taken President Xi so, such a long time to do so. I don't know that I'm surprised, Mike. I mean, I, I think what's more surprising is that President Trump still hasn't conceded the election, to be honest. And I can appreciate President Xi just waiting to see if things settle down a bit before weighing in and congratulating President-elect Biden. Do you think, though, he might have some misgivings about a Biden presidency? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think that I would suggest that a, a Biden presidency will help to heal Sino-U.S. relations. I think that there will be a change in tone. There will be, you know, obviously a lot of issues on trade and technology and human rights that the Biden administration will still want to remain firm in, in, its, in the U.S. position as it relates to China. But I think that there will be more of a nuanced analysis of these issues. I think that the U.S. and China can now begin to cooperate in areas of mutual interest, such as combating climate change and, quite frankly, fighting the COVID-19 virus. Obviously, his uh, choice for Secretary of State, which is Tony Blinken, is going to have a big impact in this area. What do you know about Mr. Blinken? Well, uh, Mr. Blinken is a seasoned government official. Uh, he has been steadily moving up the ranks in U.S. Uh, diplomacy and diplomatic uh, positions. I think he will be uh, someone who is very steady in his approach, uh, which will mirror uh, what President-elect Joe Biden has shown. Um, I think that he will be a serious player on the international stage, and I think his goal will be to reassure the world that the United States is back um, and that we will not really be following the go-it-alone doctrine uh, that the Trump administration followed, but we will work together with our allies and, and, and even with our rivals to try to find solutions that are mutually beneficial. Okay, well, one of uh, Mr. Biden's choices uh, in his new team, Janet Yellen, was uh, cheered by the markets. Um, but there's still an issue, isn't there, of getting these nominations through Congress. Do you see that sort of reflecting the deep divisions that we've seen during the U.S. presidential election? Well, I certainly do think that they, they do reflect those divisions. But I think with a change of tone uh, with the Biden administration, we will have uh, some ability to, to heal those divisions. Um, certainly, uh, the, the uh, nominees must be approved by the U.S. Senate. Uh, the Republican Party still controls the U.S. Senate. But President-elect Biden has had been in the U.S. Senate for many, many years. He has relationships on both sides of the aisle. And, and quite frankly, I think that his nominees are not controversial. Um, so I think that there is a, a very good likelihood that their nomination process will be smooth. An Australian-British academic jailed for spying by Iran has been released after two years behind bars in a swap for three Iranians linked to a botched Bangkok bomb plot. 
Middle East scholar Kylie Moore Gilbert says departing Iran was bittersweet, despite injustices endured during more than 800 days detained in the country's toughest prisons. The 33-year-old was arrested in 2018 after attending an academic conference in the city of Shom. She was later charged with espionage and sentenced to 10 years in jail. Anna-Marie Evans asked Paul Rogers, Professor of Peace Studies at Bradford University in the UK, why he thinks Iran agreed to the prisoner swap. I think there are probably several things. Uh, most likely it's linked in, is informally, so to speak, with the election of Joe Biden. It's probably one of these moves by Iran just to sort of ease the tensions a bit, even though it does not involve an American citizen. Uh, so indirectly, this probably related to that. Uh, also, they probably wanted these three prisoners in Australia back. They've been responsible for what could have been uh, a very bad attack on a group of Iranian uh, of Israeli diplomats. And so basically, doing this at this time is probably significant for the Iranians. It probably means the slightly less hard-line groups within the Revolutionary Guard have had their way on this issue. What it means for the long term is, is rather difficult to say, but I think one also has to recognize that Kylie Moore Gilbert was actually quite a high-flying young academic. Uh, she worked specifically on Shia revolutions. Uh, she spoke Persian, almost certainly spoke Arabic as well, and so was sort of no mean person in an, in an academic way. There may well have been a subplot in the sense that having actually uh, detained her and put her in for 10 years, one of the effects of that will be to discourage other academics from basically having anything to do with Iran. I mean, I've been to academic conferences in, the, in Iran in the past, and, you know, it's the kind of deterrent which may be self-defeating for the Iranians in a way, and that it breaks down some of the links they might have with otherwise bona fide academics. Now, there's another high-profile British woman that's been held in Iran, and uh, her husband, of course, Richard Radcliffe, has been uh, campaigning for her release. So is there any hope that uh, the release of Kylie Moore Gilbert uh, could uh, lead to hopes that Naz uh, Nazanin um, Radcliffe would also be released? It's certainly possible. And here again, I think the Iranians... Uh, are very angry at the way they've been treated by Donald Trump. Uh, they actually have suffered quite heavily on the economic sanctions. They've been quite particular. And it may well be that Trump will try and uh, sort of embed further sanctions with Senate even before he leaves office. Biden coming in does ease that. Britain is one of the key three European players in the nuclear deal, along with Germany and France. So this might be an opportunity to uh, re release Nazarin Zagari Ratcliffe. Uh, one should say one thing here is that she's basically spent, well, she served four and a half years of a five-year sentence. Uh, she is apparently up for trial for a further sentence. But at present, of course, she is actually on in uh, house arrest with her parents in Tehran. So it's not as bad a position as Kylie Moore Gilbert was in, in that she was in prison, I think, the whole time, although the prisons did change. Uh, but she was only in for, what, less than two years. That being said, I think there's at least it eases the possibility that Zagari Radcliffe could be released. One hopes very much so because, of course, her daughter is in England with her father. Her daughter hasn't seen her mother for, I think, for a couple of years. So one would hope for the best. It's a sign, as far as one can tell, that the Iranians want to do improve relations with Western countries. And one can hazard a guess this is something to do with the result of the American election.
Halima Arden, the world's first hijab-wearing supermodel, says she's quit fashion shows because they clash with her religious beliefs. It came after Ms Arden posted a series of Instagram stories documenting her struggles as a practising Muslim in the industry. There's been a lot of support for the model on social media today. The BBC's Ali Costello has more. So lots of people would have first seen Halima Aden when she graced the front cover of Sports Illustrated magazine about 18 months ago and she was wearing a hijab. And that got a lot of press coverage at the time because it's not really something that we've seen before. Um, but she's since walked for London, Milan and New York Fashion Weeks and she's fronted big celebrity brands like Kanye West's label Yeezy and Rihanna's makeup line Fenty. So Halima has become known as the world's first hijab-wearing supermodel. And she's only 23, but faith has clearly always been important to her. She was actually born to Somali parents in a Kenyan refugee camp before the family moved to the US when she was six. But now we know that obviously combining her faith and her work in the fashion industry hasn't always been plain sailing. She's been treating it a little bit like a confessional on her Instagram. She's saying that the pandemic and time away from the industry has given her time to reflect on her hijab journey. And it's upon this reflection where Halima says she was made to compromise her faith on several occasions. She's posted photos of a shoot where she says she was made to wear a pair of jeans over her head instead of a hijab, another with a T-shirt wrapped around her head in the place of a headscarf. And she writes that she was so desperate for any representation that she lost touch with who she was, including missing her daily prayers for shoots. Halima ends this lengthy Instagram post by writing that she will not take place in runway shows again and that she won't compromise her hijab, even if she was offered $10 million. Those stories were part of the Newsrep programme, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Fight the virus, stay vigilant. If you think you have a higher risk of COVID-19 exposure or experience discomfort, you can collect specimen bottles for free testing from designated public clinics. Meanwhile, the government will arrange free testing for targeted groups. To minimize the risk of community transmission, we should take the initiative to get tested. Together, we must fight the virus. Stay vigilant. Visit coronavirus.gov.hk for details. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December, we'll have moments to remember. 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 Oh yeah, this is it. Moments to remember, meaning nostalgia. Nostalgia from now until 1am. Your host, Uncle Ray.
What a beautiful start. That was Air on the G-String by Mantovari. Let's welcome to Nostalgia, Johnny Hartman. Long ago far away I dreamed a dream one day and now that dream is here beside me 